Over the past few weeks, we've been focusing on relationships. We started in Ephesians 4. We've walked through some interpersonal things within the church. And then last week, we narrowed our focus from relation, relationships in general to the specific. And, and generally, maybe the most significant of human relationships, and that is marriage. Pastor Keith last week walked us through Ephesians 5, 22 through 30, which is a familiar but sometimes difficult passage of Scripture, which deals specifically with the roles of husbands and wives. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, and husbands are called to love their wives. It's certainly easy to say, easy to read, but maybe not so easy to implement and walk in our day-to-day lives. So I hope that this series has been an encouragement to you as we've looked to apply biblical truth to all of our relationships, and especially last week and today as we look specifically at marriage. Before we begin, we just join with me in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we're looking to your word this morning to hear from you. Lord, I pray that your truth would be clear, that my tone would convey your authority, but also show your gentleness and compassion towards us who are broken and fallen sinners. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of sin this morning, but that you would encourage us with the truths from your word. Lord, I pray that everything that I say this morning would be pleasing to you, that the meditation of my heart would be focused on you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week we narrowed in on different roles between husband and wife. And and today we're only looking at three verses. And we're going to zoom out a little bit. And we're going to consider why we should take the instructions when it comes to husbands and wives specifically so seriously. Now my guess is that if you're like me, you might have gone through these past couple of weeks. And and some of you may have been wondering, well, well, why even bother? There is no way that I can live up to this standard. It's too hard. The expectations are too large. Some of you may have taken one of these pamphlets that's out there in the, in the lobby, 24, but it's actually 25 keys for good relationships. You're looking at this list and you're saying, man, this is a long list. And some other of you may be looking at this and saying, yeah, my spouse cannot do this. Some of you may this week have highlighted a couple things and folded it back up and stuck it in a, on the coffee table hoping your spouse would pick it up and get some tips. If that's you, I just want to remind you that you're in good company. If you remember back to Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they come to test him specifically on the issue of marriage and divorce. But throughout that interaction, Jesus does something shocking to the Pharisees and even to the disciples themselves, and I'm sure everyone around. Jesus, in answering the Pharisees' accusations, firmly roots marriage in the creative order. He decisively rejects divorce. He declares that no man should separate what God has joined together. 
And after this scene with the Pharisees, the disciples are puzzled. They're concerned. They're maybe even a little bit confused. And so what they say in response to Jesus is, is this. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And it's telling what Jesus says in response. He doesn't hedge. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to soften his language. He simply says, not everyone can receive this saying. He essentially doubled down on his teaching. He's telling the disciples, and by implication us today, that yes, marriage is serious. That yes, marriage is intended to be permanent. That yes, divorce should be avoided at all costs. And yes, this is a matter to take with the utmost seriousness. And so the question for you and me today becomes, well, why? Why is this such a big deal? Why do I have to take to heart the things that Pastor Keith walked us through last week? Isn't that just optional? Isn't that just for the super Christians? I would say no. Because Jesus says no. Because God says no. And I know that because of the three verses that we're looking at here this morning. The last three verses of Ephesians chapter 5. We're just going to look at those three verses, 531, 32, and 33. Why should we take so seriously the lessons we learned last week? Paul gives us three reasons in our text this morning. Number one, because of God's divine order. Number two, because of God's divine intention. And number three, because of God's divine imperative. So we start in verse 31, and we see God's divine order. We see here the basis of marriage from the beginning because Ephesians 5.31 is not original to Paul. I'll put it up here for you. This is Genesis 2.24, but if you look at Ephesians 5.31, they're almost exactly the same. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Why does Paul reference Genesis, because he's telling us something about marriage. He's telling us something about God's divine order. He's saying, husbands and wives, this is how you are to live, not based on what I am telling you alone, but I'm calling back all the way to creation in the garden before the fall, that this is God's divine order for men and for women, that a man would leave his father and mother that he would hold fast to his wife, and that the two shall become one flesh. We see that from the very beginning, the plan is marriage. It is crucial that we see that this is God's design from the very beginning. You see, it's not civilization that invented marriage. This is not a cultural or societal construct. The government did not and does not define marriage. The definition for marriage is not up for debate because it is a God-ordained aspect of human, human living that has been designed 
for our good. Unfortunately, this is becoming an increasingly unpopular position to take in our society today. We live in a time and a place that has attempted to change this once universally accepted truth that marriage is meant to be a lifelong union between one man and one woman. By divine design, God created a distinction between men and women, not in value or in worth or in dignity, but in physicality, in role and position. We see this distinction as man was not created to be alone, but he was given a helper by God who was made to be perfectly complementary to him. This was and continues to be God's plan from the very beginning. Why can't two men or two women marry? Why do we reject bigamy and polymory? Why is it not okay for a woman to decide to marry her cat or a man to decide to marry his dog? Somewhere not around here, there is a man who is trying to legally marry his computer, a robot. We laugh. But this is the state of our society today. But why not? Why not? If it's just a cultural construct, if it's just a society's preference, then sure, marry whoever you want. But that is not God's divine order. Why do we have to have such a narrow definition of marriage? Is it because we're narrow-minded? Is it because we're bigots? I would say no. To put it simply... We have a narrow definition of marriage because this is how God has divinely ordered his creation. I believe that the primary reason that our culture is rejecting and attempting to redefine marriage is simple as well. They have rejected the truth of their creator. They therefore reject what he has made clear in his word about marriage, sexuality, and his authority. To paraphrase Paul, the chaos that we are seeing in society today has come because they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This, by and large, is what accounts for marriage being reduced to a transactional relationship focused on only personal fulfillment and satisfaction. Disordered passions has led to an abuse of the opposite sex, including pornography, homosexuality, sex trafficking, slavery, and confusion over the very definition of male and female. Now hear me clearly. This is not a political issue. This is a spiritual issue. This is a biblical issue issue. Seeing God's divine order is crucial, not only for our understanding of marriage, but also for our flourishing as a church and a society. And the church is not without blame. Unfortunately, not this church, thankfully, 
Unfortunately, many churches have stood on the sidelines for far too long. You look in the news today and you see churches standing silent as the bond of marriage is ripped apart through no fault divorce, through covering up sins of abuse and harm even by church leaders themselves, by allowing both men and women to abandon their God-given roles in the church and in the home. This is why we must take it seriously. This is why we must do better. This is why we must have a rich understanding of God's design and a commitment to raising the next generation of men and women to properly uphold God's good gift of marriage in every facet of life. So before we move on to the next divine reason to commit to God's ideal of marriage, we should note the process of marriage that is also found within verse 31 and Genesis 2.24. You'll notice as you read through it that there's a threefold progression in becoming husband and wife. Husband is to leave, to hold fast, and to become one flesh with his wife. First, the husband is to leave father and mother. This is significant because a proper understanding of marriage places the marriage relationship at the pinnacle of all relationships. There is a separation. There is a leaving from the parents. And whether we like it or not, our most influential influential relationships, especially as we grow up, are most often with our parents. And that can be either for good or for bad. And we bring along a strong bond of attachment to our parents and our families. This is not all bad, but God's intention is that we will separate from these relationships as we take on more independent responsibility and then as we take on a spouse. This tells us that marriage is not for the immature, that there is great responsibility in marriage. That it is only for those who are prepared to make a lifelong commitment to someone else and then enter into a new superior relationship that will surpass all other relationships. So if you're a husband or wife out there this morning, if you are a prospective husband or wife out there this morning, you need to recognize that your spouse, your relationship with your spouse must take ultimate priority over every relationship and everything else out there. Why? God's divine order demands it. Your relationship with your spouse is greater than your job, your career, your vocation. It's greater than whatever sport you like to play, whatever sport you like to watch, whatever hobbies you have, whatever you like to do on the weekends with the girls or with the guys. You name it. If you're going to get married, if you are married, we must understand that the priority that the marriage relationship should receive. A man or woman who neglects their spouse in favor of any other type of relationship is going against the divine order that God has set forth. There's independence, there's maturity, there's responsibility that's signaled in leaving the mother and the father. But then he says, 
They are to hold fast to his wife. This concept is one, the, the picture is something that's welded or, or glued together. And it speaks of the unity that is formed between the husband and wife as they leave their parents and come together. And this is where we get the idea that marriage is intended to be permanent and lifelong. Remember Jesus' teaching, Matthew 19, it is God who joins the couple together. And no man should seek to sever that relationship. You should take note that this does not happen by accident. It is an act of the will. Husbands, you are called to commit to your wife, to be faithful in all aspects of your marriage, to protect and lead and love her. Wives, you are called to commit to your husband, to be faithful in all aspects of your marriage to help and to nurture and to submit to your husband. But there is great protection and security in this type of commitment. It's when we are in times of disagreement or uncertainty or distress or discouragement that we know that we have been united together with our spouse. This is why in marriage we recite vows to one another for better or for worse for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. This is what it means to hold fast to your spouse. We choose to do that. And then we see that the two shall become one flesh. Now this certainly implies the physical union of sex in marriage. Not something that we need to shy away from or be embarrassed about. In fact, it should be celebrated. God has designed sex to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage, yes. But becoming one flesh is much more than just a physical act. You see, it is a continual process throughout life that sees the couple grow into deeper intimacy and unity as the years go by. Pastor Keith wrote this, couldn't say it any better. He says, Becoming one flesh is the melding of two hearts, two minds, two bodies, and two personalities, until they are so intertwined that it is hard to know where one ends and the other begins. You see, This concept gives new meaning to Paul's advice last week to men. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Why? Because everything you give to your wife comes back to you. Because you are one. This physical union also has a natural product. Sex, by design, is intended to bring about the union of two people's genetic material into one flesh child. This is not to say that every marriage must or will have children, but it is to say that marriage is the environment that God intends children to be conceived, born, nurtured, raised, and then ultimately launched into the world. This is God's ordained order for the cycle as children are conceived as they grow up, as they leave, as they get married, and then have children themselves. And so this gives us the theological basis for our commitment to the ideal of marriage. It's rooted in God's divine order. But Paul goes on. 
He gives us more insight, another valuable reason to live out this kind of marriage. We see God's divine intention. Look at verse 32 with me. Paul says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This phrase, this this mystery is profound, could be translated as, this is a mega mystery. This is a mega mystery, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the question becomes, well, well, what is this mega mystery that Paul is referring to exactly? And if we go through Ephesians and just look at the different places that Paul talks about mystery, we get a little more insight into what he's talking about. Ephesians 1, 9. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will. So it has something to do with God's will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So it's about God's will is attached to Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then in Ephesians 3, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So this mystery of his will that relates to Christ, that's going to unite all things, it was hidden for a time in the past, but now it's being revealed. This mystery is what? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that they are members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then his next reference is our text this morning. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then one more time, he'll address it in Ephesians 6, 19. As he closes the letter, he says, And also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So that's a lot of verses I threw out to you, but this is what I'm trying to put together. This mega mystery is not marriage itself, but it's the foundation of marriage. By quoting Genesis 2, Paul is tying God's design for marriage with Christ's future union with his people, the church. What this means is that marriage has been It has always been, from the beginning of creation, modeled after Christ's relationship with his church. That this is not just a new cultural phenomenon. This is not something that just belongs to the church. But it's a reality for all marriages at all times from the very beginning by God's design. He is saying that this was the mystery that was once hidden. That when God instituted marriage in the garden... He modeled it after Christ's love for the church. And so when we step back and see that marriage was always meant to display that love of Christ for his people, that means that Jesus reveals to us the true nature of marriage. And so we can look to Jesus to understand our role in marriage. Because remember last week, Husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And wives are commanded to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. 
So then what do we learn about marriage from the way that Jesus lived? Here's just a few references because we could spend the rest of the morning here. We learn that Jesus gave himself. We've already referenced that. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God instituted marriage in Genesis knowing that Christ would model the type of love that husbands are to give to their wives, a self-sacrificial love. We see that again in Philippians 2, one of the most famous passages of the Bible, that he willingly went to the cross. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he, th- though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is informing us of what love looks like in marriage. He united us with him through his death. That's Romans 6, 5. For, we, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like him. So now you see the unity between Jesus and his church. That is supposed to be modeled and seen in the unity between husband and wife. We see that Jesus has made us, made us partakers of his own nature. This is Second Peter 1, 4 and 5, by which he has granted us to his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And one more. He did not please himself. Rather, he looked out for us. This is Romans 15, 1 through 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The mega mystery is simply this. That marriage has always been a divine picture of the gospel. Which means that the degree to which we understand the gospel is the degree to which we understand marriage and the degree to which we are able to live it out on a day-to-day basis. So listen to how this author put it. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful all at once. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Now the question becomes, can we apply that same truth in our marriages? We must ask ourselves daily, Am I doing for my spouse what God did for me through Christ? When we view marriage in this light, we realize that marriage is an opportunity for God to work in our hearts to bring gospel transformation in us. 
So to put it in some practical terms, when our spouse fails to love us as they should, the gospel reminds us of God's unfailing love for us. When our spouse sins against us, the gospel reminds us of our own sin and God's forgiveness. When we see our spouse's flaws, the gospel reminds us of our own flaws and yet God's commitment to us. When we are tempted to quit, the gospel reminds us of what Christ has endured. When we are tempted to be selfish, the gospel reminds us of Christ's selfless life and self-sacrifice. When we face difficulty in our marriage, the gospel reminds us of our security in Christ. When our spouse fails us, the gospel reminds us of our own failings, but more importantly, of our identity that is found in Christ. We could go on and on, but hopefully we can see how this gospel, this view of marriage is the transformative power that enables us to live the life that God has called us to, especially as husbands and wives. This was God's intention as he designed marriage to be a picture of the gospel. But not only is marriage a divine window for us to view the gospel, experience and live the gospel, it is a window by which others might see the glorious truths of the gospel as well. As we live our marriages with a gospel focus, we make much of Jesus, and the world can't help but notice. As Christians, our marriages get to point to the greatest love story of them all, Christ's love for us. Marriages that are marked by trust, compassion, sacrifice, forgiveness, love, commitment, endurance, they seem to be few and far between. But they should be the standard way of living for the Christian. Because we have this mystery that God has made a way for us to be with Him through His Son, Jesus. Think of the transformative power our marriages could have in our families, in our churches, in our communities if we truly let the gospel inform our hearts and our minds. So we've seen that we should commit to God's ideal of marriage because of His divine order because of His divine intention, and then lastly here, because of His divine imperative. We don't have to spend much time here because He has already said this before. We went over it last week. But just in case you missed it, Paul summarizes his teaching, verse 33. However, can also be translated, indeed, or also, or and. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. He says, as a reminder, number one, husbands love your wives. Number two, wives respect your husbands. 
Yes, it's been said before, but here it's repeated. Why? Well, probably because we're stubborn. Probably because we're selfish. And probably because we're sinners. In light of God's divine order, in light of God's divine intention, we are now given a clear and direct divine command. It's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's not a cute slogan. It's not a bumper sticker. It's not just a piece of artwork that you put in your living room, but a command. And and hopefully, as we've walked through this this morning, we have a better understanding about why this is so important. That this is a teaching that originated in the garden before the fall. It points to the greater reality of the gospel that we can take hold of today. Therefore, it is not optional for the life of the believer. And we shouldn't have to, but we should point out that, yes, it's a command, and yes, we should obey just because it's a command. But remember what Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. We obey this imperative because of the love that Christ has for us that has infected our hearts and we respond back to him with love. How could we not, knowing what Christ has done for us? So husbands, go back through Ephesians 5 this week. Ask yourself, am I loving my wife like Jesus loves the church? And this is not a yes or no answer. Think deeply. Think of all the ways and all the examples that Jesus demonstrated His love towards us. Are you loving your wife like that? Wives, go back through Ephesians 5 this week. Ask yourself, Am I responding to my husband in the way that the church ought to respond to Jesus? And it's not a yes or no question. Consider that all Christ has done. Consider that all that he asked of us. Are you responding to your husband in that way? Ask God to reveal to you areas of weakness. Commit to following through with obedience and transformation. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel. I know your husband's not perfect. I know your wife's not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. My wife's pretty perfect. (laughs) Yes. God knows you're not perfect. And here is the glorious truth of the gospel. We don't have to do it perfectly because Christ has already done it perfectly on our behalf. We trust in His perfection, in His love, in His work, not ours. We just work out of the grace that He has provided us. And we trust in His grace when we fail. So one more time, as we end, what does this look like in everyday life? Number one, we teach the divine order. Parents, especially... Forget what modern culture says. Turn off the news. Turn off the TV. Open up the Word of God. Teach your children the Word of God. Paint. 
the beautiful picture of marriage that God has intended from the beginning and call your children up to embrace the divine order. Teach them the difference between men and women. Teach them what biblical manhood and biblical womanhood looks like. Train them when they're young. Train them to have reverence for the divine order of our great creator God. Teach our children. But we also teach from this pulpit. We teach in our Sunday school classes. We teach in our small groups. And we must stand on God's word. This is our textbook. This is, these are our instructions. As long as we are here, Pastor Keith, myself, our elders, we are committed to teach God's word. We cannot get away from the divine order that God has established. We must teach it. We must teach it here in this building. We must model it at home. We must teach it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and, yes, maybe twice on Sunday. We must teach it. How else will they know? We must live it. We must live the divine intention. We cannot separate the gospel from our daily living. We've just walked through some examples of how that interaction happens within marriage. A couple more practical things. If you are single, you must embrace the truth of Scripture. You are hearing it taught here this morning and live a life that is sexually pure, that understands what it means to commit to a godly picture of marriage. If you are engaged in a relationship that isn't God-honoring, and that can be for a variety of reasons, You should end it today. You should seek forgiveness. You should pursue Christ. If you are married, you must continue to build and invest in your marriage. Don't be satisfied for anything less than what God intends. A marriage that lives the gospel. A marriage that provides love and respect and safety and security and forgiveness and grace. If you are struggling today in your marriage, don't put a smile on and pretend it's okay. Ask for help. Ask for counsel. Ask for guidance. Don't hide. Know that it can be better. If you have failed your spouse, confess your sin. Confess your sin to your spouse and to God. Seek forgiveness. And the beautiful thing of the gospel says forgiveness is yours. Forgiveness is for all those who come to Christ. Go to him and ask for forgiveness. If you have been wronged by your spouse, seek to display the forgiveness and grace that you have been shown by Christ. Now this is where it gets hard for me. In a good way, but it's still hard for me. I understand that it's easy to say, if you've been failed, confess. If you've been wrong, forgive. You know what? Because I haven't hardly had to do that in my marriage. I have a great marriage. 
of a great wife. I'm blessed. I know that some of you are are struggling. Some of you are hurting. Some of you don't know what it feels like to be in a God-honoring, gospel-centered marriage. And so I can't speak personally to that because I have this kind of marriage. But what do you do if you're hurting today? If you've been wrong today? If you have stuff in your past and you've got... This is what I would commend to you this morning. Number one, you are not defined by your past mistakes. Number two, you are not defined by your marriage. Number three, you are defined by your relationship with Christ. Seek Him. I don't know why the things have happened in in your life or how they came about or who's at fault and it doesn't matter. What does matter is how we respond today. How we respond to the gospel today. If we will believe the truth of this word. If we will open our hearts to Christ and say, change me, transform me. Find your identity in Christ first and trust Him to work out the details. Go to Christ with your pain, with your hurt, with your suffering, with your struggles, with your uncertainty. Go to Christ. Run to Him because He has promised to come near to those who seek Him. He has promised to give you everything that you need to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to Him. We should all commit to show the world that the gospel makes a difference in your life. Whether you're single or married or divorced or a widow, show the world that the gospel makes a difference in your life. And especially so if you are married here this morning. Make much of Christ in your relationship. We teach the divine order. We live the divine intention. And we follow the divine imperative. Love is a choice. Marriage is a choice. Obedience is a choice. So choose to obey. Choose to follow the divine commands by being faithful to God's word. The beautiful thing about obedience to God is that when we obey, we know, we can trust, we can be assured that he has our best interest at heart. How do we know that? The gospel. How do we know that? Jesus. So obey so that we might find God's best for our life today that we might feel and see and experience His grace and His goodness, that the world might see how the gospel changes lives and changes marriages and brings restoration and reconciliation, and it all points back to a loving God who from the beginning has had a plan for marriage, and that was to show the beauty and magnitude of God's love towards us. May we be a people that the world sees and knows the gospel has changed. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, hear in your word that we are confronted with truth. I pray that you will soften hearts this morning. I pray you will encourage the weary this morning. I pray you will convict the sinners this morning.
that you will reveal sin in my life, in our lives, so that we may bring it to you and experience the freedom and forgiveness that only you can give. That our lives would be a testimony to your love. That we would rest not in our efforts, that we would rest not, not in our status, but that we would rest in knowing your love. That we would rest in your calling on our lives. That we would commit to this type of marriage, to your ideal marriage, one that you have ordained from the beginning, one that paints a beautiful picture of the gospel, and one that you have commanded us to obey. We pray these things in your name. Amen.